Our guest this week is Lisa Speaker from Lansing, Michigan. Lisa, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So to begin with, let's start where we always start with just some, some name, rank, and serial number. Lisa, what is your age? 46. And your relationship status? Married. And children? Two daughters, eight and 10. And what did you study before you went to law school? Um, I had a double major in political science and Spanish. All right. And where did you go to law school? The University of Texas School of Law. Why did you why did you decide to go from a Spanish and what was the other thing? Political science. Right. Why did you decide to go from poli sci and Spanish to law school? I had decided to go to law school when I was in the ninth grade. And um, I went to a very small undergrad, so they didn't have a pre-law program. So a lot of political science majors from my college went to law school. The Spanish Spanish? was just a personal interest. Um, I I, I just liked it. I lived in Spain for a year in college. It's completely a disconnect from poli-sci and the law. Just something I enjoyed. That's great. Um, So what did you learn in law school about the business of running a law firm? (laughs) <laughs> You're hilarious. We didn't learn anything about the business of running a law firm. Nothing. Zero. Absolutely oh, yeah. nothing. No, not a single, like, nothing. I took the most practical class I took. There was two of them, and they were one-hour credits, and it was, like, an actual, like, drafting a motion, you know, using the court rules to, to do something that would actually be filed in a courthouse. But that's not anything about running a law firm. So there was... I don't even think there was anything even – if there was, I'm not even aware of it. There was not even anything available to take at my law school um, that would have prepared me to own my own business. Was the subject of starting your own law firm or having your own law firm or being in business for yourself someday ever even discussed when you were in law school? Is that something that the professors talked about or you talked about with your friends? No, and I don't, the thought had not occurred to me at that point in my life. It was completely not in my radar that I would ever be a business owner. And like in law school, it never, it just never even came up. Like no one even asked the professors anything and the professors never addressed the issue of starting your own, of of having your own law firm. Everyone just assumed they were going to be going to get a job when they got out of law school. That's my recollection. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it was a big, you know, um, school with a lot of, I mean, young. a lot of the people that went there were younger. They went straight from undergrad. Um, my friends happened to be older, but, yeah, nobody talked about going on their own that I can recall. Everyone just assumed they were going to get out of law school and get a job. Right. The, a lot of big firms recruited at my school, so that was probably the mindset of a lot of the students. Were they recruiting everyone, or were they only recruiting like you know the top ten percent of the class and and things like that? They yeah, it was not everyone, but they were recruiting people who were on journals and then the higher echelon of the students. And did everyone just? I mean, people knew where they ranked, right? I mean, they knew okay, I'm not in the top ten percent. I'm not on the journal. I'm not in the upper echelon. I didn't book all my classes. 
did you just not hang around with those people? Were you not one of those people? Or or did those people just like keep their concerns to themselves? Or were they just not thinking about what comes next? I think a lot of the people at the University of Texas were, they ended up getting employed before, you know, right after graduation or before graduation, whether it be with government or something else. So it was a pretty high employment rate. I think a lot of people have since gone on to be in smaller firms or own their own firms. But I think the mindset at the time of being in law school, that just was not something that we were exposed to at all. Even though you know that statistically speaking, 60% of the lawyers who have a license today and for the last 20, 30 years end up working in firms of five lawyers or fewer, and more than half of them are actually solos. I mean, now right. you know that. Right. Interesting. It's just interesting how how insulated from reality so most of us were in law school. I was I was exposed to this reality in law school because I went to a, a, a small school with a lot of people that were going in second career and things like that. So I guess it was just more in my on my radar. Plus, I think I just more entrepreneurial. I always knew I wanted to have my own business. But you didn't. You didn't go to law school thinking you were going to start your own law firm. Never. Mm-mm. I also didn't think I was going to be doing family law, which is the bulk of my practice now. So why did you decide to start your own law firm? So after we migrated from Texas to Michigan, I wanted to just do appeals. I had been doing some appeals in Texas, and I had been doing some appeals in Michigan, but never to the the level, the quantity that I wanted to do. And there were no law firms that just did appeals in Michigan, um, except for a couple of firms in Detroit that exclusively did insurance defense appeals. And I wanted to have an appellate firm, and there wasn't one, so that's why I started one myself. Why an appellate firm? I just really liked research and writing and the, the intellectual rigor of appeals. And it's just okay. a different form of advocacy where, you know, you're reviewing a record. Obviously, you can't change the, the past, but it's a, it's a, it provides a, a platform to articulate what a trial court did wrong or what they did right and to explain, you know, to that higher court why the decision should be overturned. And do you focus on filing the appeal or defending the appeal? Like what percentage of your practice today is filing appeals and what percentage of your practice today is responding to and defending appeals that are filed by others? The people that find us, I would say 90% of the time are coming to us because they just received an adverse ruling in the trial court. So that means we are the ones filing appeals. We love defending trial court decisions on appeal. It's a lot less work um, for a bunch of reasons, but not. it's not as often that that is what position we're in. I would say about 10% of our clients are defending the trial court decision. So most of the time we're trying to explain why the trial court got it wrong. So that must mean, and correct me if I'm oversimplifying this, that must mean that there aren't that many lawyers filing appeals for family law cases in Michigan. There or else are you or else or else you'd be getting people who say 
um, someone just filed an appeal and now I need someone to defend the appeal. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the trial attorneys, especially when they've just won, think they can just handle it themselves. Um, and so a lot of times it's when the client is unhappy, either because they're unhappy with their trial attorney or their trial attorney's like, we just lost. I think you need to have a fresh, somebody take a fresh look at this. It's kind of motivating them to have a different person look at the case. Whereas when they've won, sometimes I think maybe arrogantly so think that, well, I can handle this. I know the file better than anybody else. And we just won, so therefore I can preserve this victory in the Court of Appeals. So... I don't mean to, <laughs> I don't know how to say this. Like, how do I say this in a way that is, is respectful? I mean it in a respectful way, but like, isn't it just too easy for you to win appeals then? If you're, if you're opposing counsel, you know, you handle appeals day in and day out, week in and week out, month in, and that's all you do is appellate work, right? Correct. I mean, isn't it just like, kind of a, a college-level player competing against a high school-level level player when you come up against a lawyer who maybe does one or two appeals in their whole career? I mean... I, I hadn't thought about it like that, but that is a really good point. I mean, we have a, a fairly high success rate, considering it is always an uphill battle, being the appellant, the one that's challenging the trial court decision, but consider, even considering that, we have a very high success rate. I attributed it to the fact that there are a lot of judges making mistakes. Um, but I, I think that, that your observation is probably accurate that there also are attorneys on the other side who maybe weren't up to the task but thought they could do it anyways because, well, they, they convinced the trial court to rule in their client's favor. So clearly they have the skill set necessary to convince a panel of three judges who just do appeals to affirm. Right. I mean, I've ridden in lots of airplanes. I should be able to fly one. You just gave me a new marketing idea. Is that a fair analogy? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, So um, let's talk about your magic statement before we get on. And and since I say magic Mm -hmm. statement, I should probably make this disclaimer now. Your law firm, how to manage a small law firm, which is my business, we are the outside CEO for your law firm. Are we also the COO and CFO? I don't remember. Just the COO and CEO. Okay. So just full disclaimer there, everyone is out there. Now you know. Um, and what when you are out networking, when you're talking to people and someone asks you the question that we should all anticipate someone's going to ask whenever we go out networking, it's always amazing to me when I go to a networking event and I, I ask people the question that they should all know they're going to get asked before they go there, and they all act like they're surprised, like I didn't expect it. You know, what do you do? What do you say when someone says, what do you do? We persuade appellate courts to overturn bad decisions so that parents can get their kids back. All right. Now we know who you are. We know you're a real lawyer. We know you have a real law firm. Talk revenues. Uh, when did you start your own law firm? 2007. And uh, what were you doing before you started your own law firm? I was an associate attorney at a small local firm. And what made you the de- what made the decision 
to leave that firm to start your own instead of getting another job. And I had been thinking about it from the prior position, but I wasn't. I was too scared to go out on my own two years before that. And so basically, by the time I left the, the last firm I was at, I had been generating my own appeals. And for the last nine months at that firm, everything I worked on was work that I generated, appeals that I generated, because the firm did real estate litigation. They really didn't have any appeals to have me work on. And I had enough work to keep myself busy, a law clerk busy, and I often had overflow work for other attorneys in the firm because I needed help to keep up with my deadlines. And so it was just I had been afraid before, and I was basically like, "This is the time. If I if I if I can't do it now, when will I mean? You just have to take a leap of faith." And so I just decided the time was right to try um, to open my own firm, focusing on appeals. That was the year before you had your first child. Right. I got pregnant within a couple months of opening my firm, as did my associate. <laughs> All right. So what was your salary in the job that you left, if you remember? I don't remember precisely, but I'm going to guess it was around 50000 plus I had some bonus structure for the case, my, my appellate work that I brought in the door. So maybe all told okay. with bonuses I might have made, I don't remember, but it probably was around sixty. Okay. And what did the firm gross in its first year, 2007? Oh, my firm? Hmm. Yes, your firm. Um, well, it was an incomplete year because I didn't open the door until April. Let's talk 2008 then. Oh, boy. I don't have those numbers handy. I'm so sorry. Um, let's just say it was probably for a long time, it was kind of around 200000 so maybe like one, between 180 and 240, and that was kind of reflective of like the first six or seven years. All right, so 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12-ish, 13, it's around 200,000 gross, mm -hmm. and you're taking around how much out of it? Maybe 50 or 60. Okay. There That's was a, a period. I, right. I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I didn't look at those numbers, but I know there was a period, for example, in 2009 when I was pregnant my second time where I didn't get paid for six months. So I probably, <laughs> yeah, not, not fun. I will never forget that year ever. Okay. So let's get to where things start to get better. So 2007 is an incomplete year. We'll leave that one alone. Eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. It's now 11 years. Mm -hmm. Where did things start to turn the corner and get better? So by 2015, I was up to about 325. And I kind of, for the couple of years before that, I was just hovering like just below that. So I had noticed this pattern of me not like – there was really slow growth or no growth and sometimes a little backward steps. Um, and it, I mean, honestly, it really, I turned the corner in 2016 when I joined HTM. Um, but the numbers I was looking at, the, the growth really started in 2016. And what did the firm gross in 2016? In 2016, 561. Mm -hmm. 
and 2017, which would have been last year? 655. And we're almost done with this year. We're already in November. What's the firm going to gross this year, 2018? It looks like it's a, a, going to be 746. Okay. Uh, well, first of all, congratulations. That's that's amazing. Uh, it, it, it's reflective of you helping so many more people, right? I mean, oh, you're we, not, we have just, a lot just more. for the record, go ahead. No, we, we do help a lot more people, definitely. Just for the record, you're not working five times harder than you were working before, right? No. You're not charging five times more. You didn't just raise your prices. You didn't just work much more. You built a machine that delivers more value and gives you more freedom. Am I right? Right. Okay. But with all of this, you had a challenge. You had a problem. And you agreed to come on the show to share this challenge, to share this problem, to speak openly about it. It's a problem that a lot of lawyers have that um, they uh, don't always feel comfortable speaking about. And when they do speak about it, they usually brag about it uh, as if it's a badge of honor. But it's not a badge of honor. It's a real bad thing. Mm -hmm. What is that challenge? What was um, that challenge? My account's receivable. Okay. What had your accounts receivables gotten up to? So in 2015, the year my revenues were approximately $325,000, my accounts receivable was uh, $283,000. So where did my calculator go? So uh, just to put the math to this, um, $325,000 plus $283,000 is you delivered six, you delivered $600,000 worth of work, but got paid for only a little bit more than half of it. Correct. Which means you incurred the costs to deliver $600,000 worth of work. You supported a $600,000 infrastructure on only $325,000 of revenue. Correct. What was life like then? Uh, it was pretty tense. I would spend a lot more time working and going back to work after my kids went to bed and um, working weekends just to try to keep up because I had to do twice as much work to bring in the same dollars. And how did that affect your home life? Um, I just was always worried and, and thinking about what I had to do at work when I was at home instead of enjoying my family. Were you able to afford a great team? Team? T-E-A-M. Um, I had a team, but it was, and I, I don't want to say it wasn't a great team, but it was a part-time team. So there's only so much a part-time person can do in part-time hours. Which is why you were going back to work after the kids went to sleep because you were then working right. double time. Right. I mean, I had a, a full-time attorney, but as far as my support team, 
Um, there's just no way that you could have, for example, my part-time legal assistant who was doing legal assistant work and like the invoicing type work. There's only so much you can do in 20 hours a week. It's just, you know, you can't do a 40 to 60 hour a week job in 20 hours. Not well. Right. So well, I had a lot so of things how- on my plate, on my plate, because there just wasn't time on staff plates to do the work. So you ended up doing, it sounds like, some paralegal work and some legal secretary work because you didn't have the cash to pay for them to be full-time. Right. So At the time, I justified goal- it because they didn't want to work part. You know, one person had retired already, so it was a part-time job. They didn't want to work full-time. But I think the reality is I was fine with that for a very long time because that meant I didn't have to pay for a full-time person and, and expend those resources was my thinking. And why didn't you just turn down the work if you didn't get paid or stop working if you weren't getting paid? Why wasn't it? I'm saying this is a little bit of a rhetorical question because, you know, everyone from the outside looking in and certainly everyone who's ever had accounts receivables, myself included, you know, objectively, rationally, intelligently, we all know what the answer is. Stop Mm -hmm. doing the work, right? When Mm -hmm. you find yourself at the bottom of a hole, stop digging, right? Right. Um, but but looking back at it now, why do you think you kept going? I mean, I think naively, perhaps I thought they would pay, that they would keep their word because I was a person of my word. So why wouldn't everybody else be a person of their word? Um, the other part of it might have just been ego. Like I've take, taken on this case and I'm representing them in the Court of Appeals. I'm going to finish this out. What is the you know what is the court going to think of me if I have to get off the case because you know the client can't pay? Do you think the client couldn't pay, or you think the client simply chose not to pay? For most of them, probably chose not to, but the ones that could not, you know, could still do something. They could still communicate with us and and get on some sort of payment plan. So. How is this affecting the fun you were having as a lawyer? How is this affecting your 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 thinking process? How is this affecting, you know, I hesitate to say it, but how is this affecting the quality of the work you were able to deliver if you're working twice as many hours and you're stressed out and, you know, you're, you're not there for your kids and you don't have mm-hmm. a real full-time staff? And I, and I take your point that they're a great team, but they're only there half the time. Yeah, how was this affecting you as a lawyer? So, I mean, I think just it's demoralizing not to be paid for the work that you do. It's demoralizing to have people lie to you and not like stand up to the fact that they're telling you they're going to do this and they don't follow through and you just let them walk all over you. Um, I I think it, you know, made life more tense, it made it less fun. I do feel like part of our problem was that we main, always maintained our quality of work, even if the client was way behind and even if we really didn't think we had a realistic chance of ever getting paid. Whatever we put out into the world, we wanted us to be you know, to the Court of Appeals because we have our reputation. It's not about our clients just. It's also about our reputation. Um, we'd want it to be the best that it could be, even if it was maybe a client who, who wasn't paying. So that you know, part of the problem was we would keep on working on these cases and, and putting out a very good work product for somebody who clearly didn't 
was not worthy of that. Well, they didn't value the work enough to pay for it. Correct. So in a real sense, you and your family were subsidizing the client who probably could have paid, but they chose not to. Correct. Did you ever have conversations with any of those clients back then? And we're going to get to the solution in just a minute and how you made all this go away and how other lawyers listen to this, even if they don't do appellate work, can make this problem go away too. But I, I just would, want to... Yeah, I would say very ahead. rarely did I have a conversation like we'd send out the invoice. I had an assistant who helped me get the invoice out of the door and that's it stopped there. Like it was very rare that I would pick up the phone or email a client who was overdue for paying. And my assistant... That just she didn't have time for that in her job position with everything else she was doing, so there was nobody officially assigned the task of keeping on top of clients. So that I mean that kind of is the number one explanation for how does your account receivable get to be so large? Because sometimes sending an invoice is not enough. I mean you might have a retainer, but if the bill is bigger than the retainer, or you the retainer has now disappeared and it hasn't been replenished up until a higher level. Um, you're going to be doing work for no money sitting there. And if nobody is following up with the clients, a lot of people aren't going to, some people need more uh, encouragement to pay. It's not just getting an invoice in the mail is not enough. So 2016, so 2015, you racked up $283,000 in accounts receivable. Right. That wasn't just for that year. That was like the, that was the, the current number based on my firm history, where I stood at that okay. moment in time. Got so that it. was ja- so as of January one. Right. The previous calculation that I did, I, I misunderstood. So how much how much did you add? How much new AR did you did you generate in 2015? Oh, okay. Hold on. Um, I can do a quick calculation of that. So really the question is, how much was I owed on January 1, 2015 compared to January 1, 2016, right? Correct. Is that the question? Okay. Give me one second. That is the question. Okay. And I'll take an about. Okay. Well, it's going to be, in order to answer that number at all, I would have to look this up, and this is just going to take me a second. Okay. Um, it looks like the number, okay, at the beginning of 2015, I had an accounts receivable of 170. Wow. And at the end, at the beginning of 2016, holy crap, I had an accounts receivable of $283,000. So it went up over $100,000 in one year. Right. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I did not even know it was that bad. I had no clue. I was, like, not paying attention to the numbers at all. Like, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know how quickly it got really bad. Yeah. It's pretty amazing what happens when when we don't pay attention to the numbers. Uh, Most lawyers, you know, are not paying attention to the numbers, and they really don't know how what's really going on in their business. And Okay, so let's get to the good stuff. well, I guess we got to go a little further. So 2016, what was the accounts receivables by the end of 20, 2016? Um, How bad did it get? How high did the AR number get? 
Well, two, 2016 was when it started to get better, but I um, the I think the accounts receivable are still going up at that point because I did last night, I checked the numbers for November of 2016, which is almost towards the end of the year because I was looking from two years ago from today. Um, and, and, mm -hmm. and then November 2016, my AR was 287. So it was just a, like a few thousand. So during the course of that year, from the time I joined HTM in, in beginning of January, my AR didn't go down, but it only went up 4,000 compared to the year before where it went up over 100,000. Right. So, so we stopped the bleeding. Exactly. All right. And where does AR stand today? So my AR is still not great. I'm still working on it, but my revenue is a lot higher. So my the ratio between the revenue and the AR is much better. So as of today, my AR is 306,000. And that includes the 283 from ancient history, or does that not include the, ancient history well, AR? No, yeah, it includes any ancient history that hasn't been, you know, collected or written off, or once it's sent to, I take right. it off my AR temporarily when it goes to collections, but once my collection attorney gets a judgment, it comes back into the mix, even though they're on an installment plan. So it's including stuff, old stuff, is, I guess, the answer to your question. <laughs> All right. So between 2015 and 2016, the AR grew by $100,000. Right. Between 2016 and 2018, that's two whole years, the mm -hmm. AR has only grown by $25,000. 20, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the revenue has almost tripled. So the Over AR, right. so the rate of growth of AR went from 100,000 a year to only 25,000 dollars a year, and the rate of gross revenue growth went from 300,000 a year to 746,000 dollars a year. I mean, that's a huge improvement in your cash flow. I mean, you must be seeing some real improvements in the quality of your life. Right, right. Another calculation my husband showed me last night. It's called the days of sales outstanding, and basically, how long does it take to get any to get payment for work you did. And back in 20, January 2016, my days of sales outstanding was 285 days. In November of 2016, nine months later, it had dropped down to 177. And today it's 125. So it's not perfect, but it's heading in the right direction. So everyone who's listening to this, if they're paying attention, <laughs> hopefully they are, because there's a lot to learn here, you know, is hearing like the turnaround, a, a, a beautiful turnaround story, right? Revenues go from 325 to 746, which is more than double. Accounts receivable growth drops by 75, drops by uh, almost 300%, if I'm doing the math right. Revenue doubles, AR drops by two-thirds in terms of the growth, and the days outstanding is dropping every every quarter also, which is a good thing. This is like a, a cash flow mana from heaven. People on the outside looking in must think this looks like a miracle. Now, the lawyers listening to this, if they're paying attention, probably want to know, how did you do it? How can they do it? How A lawyer who's listening to this right now, first off, let's just say, is there anything unique or special about 
appellate work or is this relevant to all practice areas, do you think? There is nothing unique about appellate work when it comes to getting paid. Okay. Is there anything unique about appellate work when it comes, by the way, to budgeting? No. Writing a business plan? No. Knowing your numbers? No. Hiring, training, learning how to hire, train, manage, and make a profit with staff? No. No. Marketing? The only difference is my marketing is to other attorneys instead of to individuals. Sales? Converting prospective customer clients into paying clients? No. Well, there is a little bit of a difference because well, in your urgency. case, you've got two sales to make. You've got to sell the lawyer who's advising the client, and you've got to have a sale with the client who's paying the bill. Right. Okay. So what did you do? What's the solution that you did that others can emulate? and improve their life too? So I had a multi-step process and they all didn't start on day one. Um, some of them were uh, added in over the course of the past two years. So one of the first things we did was to have um, larger evergreen retainers. So I used to have a replenish retainer provision, which was like $1,000, which is, was clearly not enough. Like if we had more work to do on the case, it was going to be way more than 1000 so we are much more in tune to the, what work on individual cases will need to be done, and, and that makes the evergreen retainer larger. So it might be 5000 or 7500 but that makes a big difference when you can get that evergreen in and into your trust account so that if all I have is $1,000, then they get an invoice for five, I'm going to be chasing them down for the balance. So that was one thing, was just increasing the evergreen in our retainers. Uh, we started to and use law pay. Them, and you're chasing mm -hmm. them down on the bounce. You're chasing them down instead of advocating their case. Right. Okay. Um, we started using law pay for credit card processing, which is a um, pretty minor thing because we had used credit card processing for a while, but it just because we can include a link in our fee agreements and when we send out invoices that they can just click on it and then they get to put in their credit card information to pay their bills. It just, a lot of clients have taken advantage of that opportunity and used it, which I think increases the, um, how quickly clients pay their invoices. If you can make it easier, if you can make it easier for me to pay, I'm more likely to pay. When you make it hard for me to pay, I mean, I got to find a stamp, I got to find an envelope, I got to address it, I got to figure out a way to get it in the mail. I mean, I'm the or call or call during business hours. You know, I have to call during but, business yeah. hours because a person has to be there to take my credit card information down. So they're in control of putting in the information, and they can do it at two o'clock in the morning, and and they have a link that can go right to our trust account or to our operating account, depending on if they're making a retainer payment or paying a balance. Okay. Uh, another thing we did was implement a red rubber band policy, which um, after uh, so many days that they're behind on paying, and I think that we have a, a stepped-up procedure at you know, 15 days, 30 days, 60 days. Like when they hit the 60-day the mark or the 90-day mark, um, we're red rubber banding their file physically in our computer 
and telling them, look, we have this policy. We've shared it with you when you hired us. And this means we're not going to do anything on your case that's not essential until you get current or re, you know, resume your payment plan or come up with a payment plan or whatever the, the issue is. And we've been using that a lot more. Yeah, I was pretty slow to use it when I started it. I wasn't using it very much, and we're using it a lot more, um, which means a couple of things. One, it forces them to communicate with us more quickly to pay to start getting back on track to paying us, but it also means that my staff is not authorized to work on a case that's not absolutely essential work. Um, so I'm not paying my staff to work on a case for somebody who's not paying us. Now, um, red rubber band is a term of art that we just made up with how to manage small law firm. It's, you literally put a red rubber band around the file. The file goes in the filing cabinet, it's got a red rubber band around it, and everyone knows you don't open the file without getting permission because the rev it's almost like the file's in quarantine. Could you just explain a little bit about how that works just for people listening to yeah. this who so might mine's not be an familiar with this? Mine's an electronic filing system, so we don't have a physical rubber band. But in our client folders, on the right next to their name, we identify it RRB for red rubber band. We have a what, what I call a staff agenda where we have our staff meetings and it lists every single case that we're working on and the status of every case. And so if they're rubber banded, it's all highlighted in red. So it's even a little bit hard to read what their status is, but you can see that this client is, you know, we're not allowed to work on this client's case. And we also send them, we also tell them that their file's rubber, red rubber banded. So we do monthly status letters to all of our clients. And one of the boxes we check, there's all different things that we can check regarding the status of a client's case. And one of the boxes that usually is not checked says, you know, you're you're behind or whatever, your your file has been rubber branded and you know, we send them a copy of the policy. So that, that box that they see on every letter, if they're behind, that box is checked, along with providing them a copy circled in red with a like a red marker. This is the red rubber band policy that we sent you when you hired us to remind them what it is. And then once they get back on track, then we can take away the rubber rubber band. Okay. And there are probably lawyers listening to this who are thinking of all kinds of excuses to avoid something like this. They're probably saying, well, you know, if I do that, then the client will file the bar agreements against me. If I do that, the mm -hmm. client will file a little malpractice case against me. If I do that, then the judge will think that I'm a jerk, you know, all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. What has been your experience when you begin standing up for yourself and and refusing to continue working for free? I mean, they usually find a way to make it happen, and if they don't, we can move to withdraw. I mean, the the key is you. we're only stopping any non-essential work. So if there's something that has to be done to avoid having their case dismissed, I mean, we'll do that because if they have their case dismissed, then it opens up us up to legal malpractice, and then also then they have nothing – for us to work on if they could resume their payments. So, but for the most part, most of the stuff we do is not essential. You know, we don't have to do a reply brief. We don't have to do an oral argument. Those are optional features of an appeal. Um, you know, getting a brief done. Well, we can file a motion for extension and give them, you know, give them a few days to get their act together. And if they don't get their act together, we can file a motion to withdraw. I'm reminded of that movie Lincoln Lawyer, where Matthew McConaughey goes in front of the judge and says, we're looking for a missing witness. 
a Mr. Green, and the judge says, agree, understood, continued. Mm-hmm. Um, have you found that judges understand that you have a business to run? I mean, not all judges yeah. do. Some probably right. are completely oblivious, but I think what the is, court what of appeal. I think the appellate courts are more sympathetic. I know from talking to other attorneys, there's many a trial judge who will force an attorney to stay on a case, even though they're not getting paid, and even though they've requested to withdraw from the case. Um, but I think, I mean, I very, very rarely use it. But every time we've asked to get off a case because the client's not communicating with us or paying us, um, the court has granted that motion. Now, I try to not file those motions because if, if I'm going to have to fire the client, I'd rather I'd rather them figure out who else is going to come on the case or, or whatever the case may be so that I don't have to file a motion to because th- I don't want to throw them under the bus. I mean, that well, but if they're going to my fi- if they're gonna find the money to pay someone else, they might as well find it on the money. They right. might as well find the money to pay you. Right. It's not like you're saying, hey, I owe you $10,000, but instead of giving you the $10,000 that I owe you so that you'll continue on the case, I'm going to hire this other lawyer with the money that I could just be using to pay you. I mean, that doesn't right. make any sense. No, and I think I for found- the most part, they would want to pay they would want to pay us to finish out what we started. Yeah. I, I found that about half the trial court judges get it and are, you know, try to be cooperative and the other half don't. And I have found that even the half that don't, it's a question of timing. So if you ask them for a continuance, you know, two weeks before trial, when they've already blocked their whole trial schedule, when opposing counsel's already, you know, arranged his or her family vacation and other things around it and witnesses have made commitments and everything else. Yeah. I mean, that's not fair to everyone else involved, but if you're on top of your accounts receivables, if you're paying attention to your numbers, if you're running your law firm like an actual business instead of a joke and you're, and you're staying on top of these things and, you know, three months out, four months out, when you run into an AR problem, the client won't resolve it and you have to be, Released from the release from the from the case, I find that your percentages go up dramatically. To now it's like ninety percent who say yes, you're out if you want to get out, instead of fifty percent who say okay, you can get out. Uh, obviously, two weeks before the trial, no one's going to let you out of the case. Um, so it's it's really a question of timing. And 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 my my observation, by the way, is based on the reported experiences of hundreds and hundreds of lawyers, not my own personal experience. Just want to make that disclaimer. Um, what are some other concerns you've got with AR management and, you know, having a backbone and standing up for yourself and all that kind of stuff? What other words of wisdom can you share for lawyers who are listening well, to this who I mean the, might now – go ahead. Well, the biggest – I think one of the biggest changes we made is having a person – in my office, whose job was to do all the things that nobody was doing before. So we, we had the person, one person who was doing the invoicing, but then after that, nothing happened. And and so um, we ended up getting a full-time person who wasn't responsible for, follow, you know, sending the invoices, and following things. up with them, making sure their evergreens were replenished, you know, before even before it was time for an invoice to go out, calling to follow up if they didn't pay right away. Um, 
just keeping on top of all the financial reporting to me on financials. And so I was in, aware of the numbers. Having we have AR meetings and we and we talk about you know who needs to be sent to collections or you know whatever the case may be. Um, there's a person in my office who has that as part of their job description, all this, the financial reporting um, and keeping on top of where the clients are on their payments. What do you say to the lawyers listening to this who say, yeah, you know, that sounds great, but I don't have the money to hire these people to do all these things. You know, you've got a $700,000 a year law firm. Of course you can afford to have someone do these things for you but I can't, so I just have to live with it. What's your response to those lawyers? What's your advice? Well, I probably could have afforded somebody in that position a long time ago, but I wasn't collecting enough money. And so the person who was in charge of collecting that money did not exist at my firm, and therefore I didn't have money to pay that person. It's kind of a circular argument. So if I had hired that person, my accounts receivables would not have been as bad as they were, which means I would have had money to pay for them. And all the and other then jobs you would have had, and then you would have also had more time with your family and more free time to do marketing and more opportunities to do more research and more opportunities to do all kinds of good stuff to bring in more money. Correct. Okay. So what is life like now? We talked about the before when you had all these AR problems and um, – how it affected you at home and how it affected you professionally and obviously how it affected you financially. Uh, what are, you know, now, now we're talking about the after. What's life like now? Um, so I have more time to spend with my family, more more ability to, to go on vacation with them and, and be off the grid and away from the firm and not constantly feel like I have to, be involved with every single day-to-day -day operation of the firm, um, even when I'm on vacation. Now, I want to ask you a question that's very politically incorrect, and it's something that most lawyers would vehemently deny. Uh, and it's a hard thing to admit when you're on the other side of it, but now that you're on the right side of it, I'm hoping that you'll feel comfortable just talking about it. Um, and if you're not, I can edit this part out of the out of the podcast because this is pre-recorded. Um, how do you think this affected or affects you as a lawyer? Do your clients get a better you now versus before? Yeah, I think I think so. Because I'm able to be more involved with the big picture, the strategy, the high high publicity cases, and I can focus more on those cases, and I have the people all around me that can help help me help other people, not just the biggest cases or the biggest profile cases. So all things being equal, if I'm an attorney and I'm looking to make a referral to an appellate lawyer, uh, anywhere in the country, any practice area for that matter, do you think that one of the things that I should be looking for is a lawyer whose law firm is run better? I mean, is that going to affect the quality of, of the product that I get? 
Yeah, I, I think that is accurate. And, and, and the, not just the quality of the product, but the service aspect of it. Because I know my colleagues who are doing too much on their own are doing a lot of things halfway instead of, you know, they might be doing a great job on briefing, but they're not really taking care of all the other aspects of the client relationship. And I think that's frustrating for clients that they don't get return calls or the attorney's not communicating with them. That's something that frustrates clients. But, you know, because we're able to have the staff here to communicate with the clients, we can be very responsive to their needs, I think more so than a lot of other firms in our position as far as appellate firms. Do you think that having less accounts receivables and almost no current accounts receivables, I mean, all of your accounts receivables are like into history, right? Do you think that having a law firm that has virtually no accounts receivables makes you a better lawyer? Yeah, because I have less, I can focus on my client's problems and not focus on my problems whether or not they're created by my clients or not. It okay. gives me more energy to focus on helping my clients with their legal issues. If I was an attorney, a trial attorney, and I was looking to refer business to a appellate, to an appellate lawyer, and I think the first lesson that I just learned in this, in this podcast is if, even if I just won the case, that doesn't mean I'm the right person to handle the appeal because that's a lot like saying I just won the case. So now I'm going to, I mean, they, I imagine a lot of them are pretty disappointed when they go from being a winner to a loser. Uh, maybe if they hired an appellate lawyer to go against an appellate lawyer, they could have kept the victory instead of losing the victory. Mm -hmm. um, but if I'm an attorney and I'm looking to make a referral, a trial attorney looking to make a referral to an appellate attorney uh, anywhere in the country, any practice area, how do I go about finding out if the appellate lawyer that I'm making the referral to, you know, is stressed to the point of distraction with AR and, and, and business management problems and all kinds of things like that, um, short of just coming right out and asking, what other telltale signs could I look for? What other questions could I ask to get at the truth of that? Or should I just come right out and ask? I have never had anybody ask me any questions that even remotely touched on that. <laughs> really? But, I mean, I think well, no, you should truly. Have seen, you should have seen me. You should have seen me grilling the doctor, uh, the OBGYN, before uh, before my wife gave birth. I mean, when we went and chose the doctor, I wanted to know who his backup was. I wanted to know about his policies and procedures you know, for what happens if he has his own emergencies. Mm -hmm. uh, when we were talking about giving birth, I, I, I made him promise me. Like, seriously, I made him promise me. And he said I was the first one who ever did it, but he understood why. I made him promise me that he was going to, like, take a day off and, you know, go to the spa. And I said mm -hmm. I would buy him a ticket, you know, buy him a, 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 a gift certificate. He said it's not necessary. I said, you know, I, I wanted him to be rested and at his best before he brought my son into the world. I didn't want him, you know, at home fixing his garage or fixing the gutters of his house and, you know, having an argument with his wife over some bullshit. I wanted him to be like, not just as a matter of competence, but also the first person, the first human being who touched my son on this planet, 
I wanted him to be in a good, happy mood. Maybe I'm crazy. I mean, I think the, I'm not the, shy about asking that kind of thing, but I guess most e- people are. The easy question or the easy, uh, you know, the signs that you can be looking out for as an attorney who's making a referral to another attorney is do they does the attorney have a team to support them and are they being responsive to the client's needs or the potential client's needs? Because chances are if they're completely disorganized at the forefront, they're going to be completely disorganized once they get your case. Um, so is there somebody who's communicating with them, even if the attorney that they want to talk to is not available to speak with them precisely when they ask, but is there somebody there who's there to help them um, and follow up with them? So, I mean, I think that those are some of the things you can find out very early on in the relationship, but not necessarily asking a lot of questions. But you could ask if they have policies and procedures. I mean, just as a general rule, like, you know, you can kind of get a sense for how their business is. Forget about the number of revenues, but just do they have a good business model? Are they are they making sound business decisions? Or are they staying up till midnight to do paperwork that a support person could be doing? So you could just, like, make small talk around those subjects and kind of, like, see where they go. And if they say, yeah, you know, I'm working, like, crazy hours, you know, mm-hmm. hey, you know, word to the wise, this is not someone who's going to be at his or her best all the time because mm-hmm. they're usually doing a bunch of stuff they don't like doing. Right. Hey, Lisa, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to be a guest on the podcast. Um if a lawyer wants to uh, make a referral to you, uh, how would a lawyer find you? What is your website? Speakerlaw.com. Speaker like uh, professional like speaker, speaker of the house. SP, yep. Speaker of like, the house. Speaker. Speakerlaw.com. Speakerlaw.com. Lisa Speaker. Speakerlaw.com. And. Um, Thank you so much for, for 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 taking the time to be on the show, and thank you for having the courage to speak openly and and honestly about a subject that a lot of attorneys wouldn't have the courage to even discuss. I appreciate that. I'm confident that many lives will be improved because lawyers will listen to this and know they're not all alone, and and they'll take some they'll take some positive actions to get their business under control. I really appreciate this. Thank you, Lisa. You're welcome.